Welcome to Podcast Marketing Secrets, a place for entrepreneurs, coaches, and CEOs who are looking to grow their business with a podcast, become a key person of influence in their industry, and get their ideal clients to come to them, also known as Attraction Marketing. I'm your host, Al Morenton. My guest today is John Chan. John is an entrepreneur renowned for his expertise in web UX design and digital marketing. Born in Hong Kong and raised in Vancouver, John dropped out of university at the age of 19 to start his own web design consultancy. Since then, he has worked for several prestigious companies, including UBC and Basecamp, before co-founding 2X Growth Agency. The agency specializes in helping e-commerce and D2C brands grow and scale with paid ads and ad creative development. Under John's leadership, 2X Growth Agency has managed over $6 million of ad spend and helped generate over $30 million in revenue for their clients. With his diverse background and extensive experience in entrepreneurship, John is a highly engaging and insightful speaker for any event or podcast. Welcome to the show, John. Al, oh, thank you for having me. That's quite the introduction. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's awesome. And it's cool you used to work for Basecamp because I actually use Basecamp. <laughs> it's a great product. I learned a lot from Jason and David. They, they're they great original thinkers and great business people. Yeah, that, that guy, I, I actually heard a podcast from him recently that he was getting interviewed and, and he, he seems pretty like focused and driven. That's, Absolutely. that's awesome. But that's a good end to you. And why don't you tell us about your background and sort of what led you up to opening a uh, digital marketing agency that focuses on paid ads. For sure. So um, you, already, you already gave the introduction, but I think the punchline was I started my career when I was 19, when I dropped out of school. And mm -hmm. I didn't know this at the time, but the but the superpower that I've always had was I was very good at learning things very quickly. And so one of the motivations about leaving school was that I found school kind of slow for me. And I found it was sort of impractical for the things that I wanted to learn versus what I thought was actually needed, in quote unquote, the real world. And so I basically had three major phases in my career path where the first phase was I started off as a web designer and UX designer. And uh, I started freelancing, but I wasn't very good at the business mechanics of it. So I actually ended up taking a first full-time job back at the university I left, which was University of British Columbia at the UBC. I was talking about. And in the environment, um, it gave me exposure to uh, a lot of conferences. It gave me exposure to a lot of web professionals. And this was mid-2000, so 2006 to 2011. And during that time, I was exposed to web usability and understanding user research. I helped them set up their first usability lab. I helped them run guerrilla usability marketing. And a lot of it was really tying in sort of the next problem that I had as a web designer at the time, which was as I'm making these interfaces, as I'm designing all these web pages, who is it on the other side and how am I impacting them? And so helping me sort of tie that loop was kind of the, the first motivation. And that sort of led to the sort of first major arc of the career path of transitioning away from being a UX designer to being a, a CRO consultant. Because when I eventually capped out at UBC, I was just trying to figure out what's the next problem to solve, which at that time was how do I make sure that the designs that I had had a business impact and not just impacting users. And so it kind of sort of like was chasing up the chain. And it made me realize that if I wanted to make sure that my designs were impactful, I had to make sure my designs were measurable. And that's sort of what would transition me into doing uh, conversion rate optimization and A-B testing. Because I was just really trying to measure my redesigns. Were they actually much better than what I thought it was? Not just from a user perspective, but from a from a business perspective. 
And one of my first gigs, I, I, I met with a bunch of different companies at the time. Um, they did a few sort of uh, consulting gigs on the side. Um, but, but the feather in the cap was I, I landed a gig at Basecamp. And um, around that time, they were looking for a, a web optimization role and a like, conversion optimization role. And I pitched Jason basically saying, hey, this is my background. This is how I approached it. And he would like that. And it kind of got me the gig. And one of my first sort of like uh, campaigns that I ran with them was I redesigned their homepage, helped, uh, I guess, it's more common now, but I, it was it was different at the time where I, I used um, uh, I tied in their product category with last week X amount of people uh, started their project management with Basecamp. Today it's your turn, and I think that catchphrase I started seeing a lot of web products adopt that because there were people look to them. Um, but we had a significant lift in conversions back then, and that kind of like got my foot in the door, and it kind of got me exposed to the entire funnel and the software business. Um, but eventually, when that ran its course. Um, I actually started my own uh, software business because I learned a lot about their approach and how they think about remote companies. I thought a lot about how they bootstrap software. And um, so I started dabbling and foring into uh, software development, which was kind of the next sort of phase outside of UX because I was, again, solving the next incremental challenge. And that was actually a particularly challenging period in my career where it was easy to learn web design and user experience design on your own and be an autodidact, but it was much harder to learn that as a software engineer. And so what what really got me going through that pro or like that process was um as I was learning through web tutorials and things like that on my own, I joined a coding bootcamp as a TA. And my pitch to the principal was really funny because I told him, hey, listen, I'm not gonna be the best programmer on your roster, but I remember what it's like to be a beginner. So I can relate to your students a lot better. And I eventually sort of rose my ranks within that sort of pitch. So he bought it. I rose my ranks within the pitch. Uh and and was impactful to a lot of students. But realistically it was just giving me exposure to the curriculum and just practice over and over again to solve the same kind of common problems. Um, and that sort of gave me a really solid foundation for what it means to write software and to product development and program. And um, that took us to maybe towards the end of 2016 or so um, before I get to the final phase of my career path, which is going starting the consultancy. Because at the time when we ran the software company, we told ourselves and we thought to ourselves that maybe we weren't good at, we had we had product traction, people loved the product, but we couldn't get to commercialize, we couldn't get to that scale. And so we thought that what we needed at the time was marketing expertise and marketing help. And one of the driving sort of philosophies and, and core ideas that we had was you teach what you need to learn. So if I wanted to learn how to program, teach it over and over again so that you understand the mechanics well enough. And so we started running meetup groups back then. We weren't doing podcasts. We we're running different events to source different experts to talk about the different parts of the growth funnel and eventually starting to do that on our own, only to realize maybe halfway through the the um, the, the agency uh, sort of process that there's, the secret to growth wasn't actually just that we weren't good marketers. It was that there was a timing aspect and the product aspect and picking a good category. And so sometimes the people that we're serving weren't better marketers than us, but they understood distribution well enough to get traction and commercialization. And so current form of the agency takes us up to the, today now. We're a growth market agency for DDC, e-commerce, and SaaS brands. But the core idea now is we're recognizing that our core strengths as operators is that we're much better at taking a business from one to 10 rather than going from zero to one. We, if, if we have a business with existing processes and data points, we're much better at optimizing and improving it. And that gave us a way to really think about problems creatively. And that just takes the entire journey from being a designer to being a software developer to being a marketer. And we can think about these problems in these sort of with these different hats. That's awesome. And uh, and the the fact that you like that 
uh, all this analytical type of like um, jobs or whatever you want to call them, you know, be beforehand. And the the way that you approached, like you know, being the TA and 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 doing all that, and, and just and just getting things ingrained in you over and over, that's the perfect mindset for um, doing, you know, like uh, a, a marketing agency and, and and you know, involving paid ads and different and and different you know things, you know, not just one thing, but you know, a combination and all that, and testing and A/B testing and all these different things, like. Because that's something that even marketers that own agencies don't want to do, you know, a lot of times. So, so you having the drive to just almost naturally do that. It says it's, it's, it's in your DNA to do that. That's uh, makes your agency more powerful. That, that's super awesome. So you said D to C and e-commerce and SaaS is your main. Focus. Yeah. DTC e-commerce is the category because sometimes e-commerce companies can have different channels. And so we just focus primarily on the DTC side of things. So which means that if they're if they're um primarily, you know, companies that are looking selling on Shopify, increasingly we have a few companies that would sell on Amazon, that kind of thing. But largely when they're engaging with end consumers directly, how do you take a product to introducing it for the first time? All the way to to purchase, um, and software uh, companies we we have um, a little bit less so. I think uh, we used to do that more, um, but largely companies that are either B two B when they're looking at lead capture to point of sale, um, or in some cases there might be some consumer products that you know how do you position your product in a way that they understand against the sea of products that are available in the market, um, and also finding channels that fit their business model so that they can grow sustainably. That's awesome. And um, yeah, the uh, like I have, I actually have an e-commerce uh, business, and um, the when, when I and I've actually never done paid ads ever for it because uh, I've I've uh, been a practitioner. It's a wellness business. I've been a practitioner for thirty for thirty plus years. So um, I just had a bunch of clients and whatever. But uh, um, but yeah, it's it's always uh, fascinated me, you know, you know, and. Uh, like in today's world, like in, you know, going into 2024, do you think that paid ads are like essential? Like maybe not the only thing, but an essential part of the marketing and sales process for an e or a D to C or e-commerce brand? Absolutely, and I think the best litmus test for looking at that is. Black Friday and Shopify, they just did $9.2 billion in sales. It's, it's an up from, I think it was like 23% growth year over year. Um, and a lot of that, a lot of that really comes down to having a sustainable channel for them to make, you know, set purchases. And so if you spend time on any social platforms today, the fact that you see, whether it's on, um, you know, the, the usual suspects would be, you know, uh, Instagram and Facebook, but you see that on TikTok. You also see that on alternative channels, like you know, before it was Snap and you also have uh, X or Twitter. Um, there's a reason why advertisers are gravitating towards these platforms and running ad campaigns. And so as you're scrolling through, it won't be long before you find an ad show up that's promoting a different product. But the only reason why they're running these type of campaigns is because it's sustainable. And that's why if you look at Meta as a business in the last 10 years, their platforms evolved but it was largely driven on the backs of the fact that you have all these advertisers that are successfully selling on these platforms. And so going into 2024, 
just like any app platforms over the last 20 years, things change, dynamics change. We're looking at an auctions platform where the different players and participants of the market is going to change the effectiveness and the viability of ad campaigns, but they're always going to be there as long as people are spending time on these platforms and are using them to lead to purchase decisions. And the fact that these advertisers are continuously running is the biggest evidence I can prove to that um, it is a sustainable channel. Does that work for every brand? No. There are certain conditions that make certain DTC brands or even e-commerce or software brands or services sell better on these platforms. Um, but it all comes down to effectively math and basic unit economics. And as long as the unit economics are viable, then you'll see continued driving of spend in these platforms. Right on. And um, is there a certain like price point or like a margin that that product should have in order to consider paid ads? Absolutely. There are certain minimum baselines that you do need because while auctions are platforms, so while ad platforms are auctions, um, their primary, uh, you know, payment model, let's say if you look at Google search, right, your payment model is on a CPC. And so there's a minimum threshold for what, what level of CPCs you're going to have to spend, call it 50 cents, call it a dollar. And so it, no matter how high converting your, your platform is, it means that you're going to have to, let's call it like a 2% conversion at 50% CPC or dollar CPC, there's going to be a lower bound for what kind of purchase you're going to have. And the same thing exists for meta. And so very broadly speaking, generally it needs to have a, a um, brand owners, if we're talking about like e-commerce, would benefit from having an AOV uh, or average order value of at least $40. Sometimes you can do it with less, but with, within that, um, you're looking at not the top line figure of what makes an ad campaign sustainable, but the margins within it. So if you have a high margin product, so which is your landed cost from getting your supplier all the way to your warehouse, then you can factor in the cost of your customer of the shipping costs that you could charge um, and margins that you have. But the contribution margins for that product, generally you need at least 70%. Sometimes it's less. Sometimes there are products that work with, with lower uh, gross margins at 50 something percent. Um, but it benefits to have, it, it will benefit the brand to have a higher AOV item or if they have f a strong repeat purchases because they have a wide range of SKUs that are complementary, so that you have a hero product that you buy as a first order to introduce people to the brand, but a strong follow-up of set of products, then you could, in theory, break even on the first purchase and then follow up with separate orders afterwards to make the business sustainable. Um, but again, it's, it's very situational, but there are minimum thresholds that you basically need. If you have a 10 to 15 to $20 product, it's going to be very hard just because your, your CPMs, uh, your cost per $1,000 impressions on meta platforms, on paid social platforms, is going to be the low, the, the, low the, the, the minimum threshold for entry to run ads sustainably. And if you don't have it, that's when you look at alternative channels like influencer marketing or organic channels as a way to supplement to drive that lower cost to make sure it's worth it. That's awesome. Yeah. And I could see how like a direct-to-consumer kind of brand could you know, sustain that, you know, like if they have the, the right, the right pricing point for their products, but the, um, the, uh, as opposed to like a, a reseller kind of, a, of, of, a, um, e-commerce, you know, shop or whatever. So that, that's pretty awesome. And then like, as far as the, the ads, um, when, when you, when, when they drive them some, somewhere, right? So do you drive to a, like a landing page for, to get more information or directly to the products? 
It depends, um, but also it depends largely on the stage of the purchase cycle that a consumer is in. And so when you think about the biggest difference between paid search, whether if it's um, you know Google or Bing, and even by extension on Amazon, where you, when, when a user searches for a particular product that they're looking for, versus on paid social, it doesn't really matter if it's you know YouTube or if it's on uh, Meta or TikTok. Generally, the the consumer is in a different state of mind. If you are uh, looking for a product, you're actively buying. That generally means that you're there's an existing demand for said product or said category. Whereas with paid social. You're not there to be advertised to. You're there to, on your downtime, to look at another video or look at your friends' feeds or something along the lines to be entertained. And so you're you're intersecting boredom with your ads. And so what you end up with is you have two fundamentally different consumer paths. Or on paid social, you're effectively as the advertiser, you're doing demand generation, as in you're creating demand that was otherwise was not there. I wasn't thinking about buying this pair of shoes, but now that I see it, I'm thinking about it. Whereas on, on search, I'm looking for that product or that brand specifically, and I'm going through consumption mode. And so because of that, when you think about the, the two different platforms, um, the it, it's it always starts with the buyer's journey. And so the landing page and destination, which, which we're asking for, really starts at if, if we're trying to push people from buying a product or a specific product, it usually means to send them to a landing page to help them consider that because that's the product they're looking for. Or if a company has a single SKU type of like product, then you would send there because that's the quickest path to conversion. However, if you're trying to sell a category, if you're selling, say, apparel, and you don't know which color a pair of shoes or which color of like styles that they want, you want to send it to a collections page that basically gives them a variety in shopping mode so you can see, hey, of the of the brand that you're interfacing with, these are the selection category that you have available to you to choose your product. So it's very situational, um, but in most cases, you would send them to the most appropriate destination that leads to the point of conversion. But sometimes it's appropriate to send them further up the funnel if the decision is where they're mentally at. Yeah, and I can see that even even with myself. You know, if I if I'm looking for a specific supplement or something like that. And I type into Google, you know, like I, I want it to go to the to the sales page, you know, like, like right. to, you know, to place, place an order because I know, you know, maybe read a little bit about the ingredients and then and purchase. But like you said, if it's a category or it's something or, or is just interrupted, you know, and I was I was doing something else and, and, and I just find out about this, I, I do want to get more information first. A hundred percent. And that's an excellent example because when you're thinking about your search environment and you're typing in a product category, you're effectively choosing between multiple options already. If you're typing in a particular supplement, you're seeing your listing compared to five or 10 other brands. And within that, you're already looking at some early data points like the price point, the number of reviews, the packaging, some sort of sense to drive you down a particular path. And so when you're when you're clicking through, you've already pre-selected something so that you should just be straight to the product page. However, if you're looking at, let's say, a competing product, let's say you're trying to do a competitive campaign where your product, you're advertising against, um, let's say, uh, a different brand. So your product category and you have a competing brand and then you're bidding against somebody else's brand, then your destination should not just be your landing page. Your destination should be a comparison page and say why our product is better than X. So a different state of mind, different use case, different destination. Yeah, that's super awesome for sure. Yeah. So, and, um, so, the, so with like 
as like google ads that's like like a search intent and then the like a facebook ad or, or meta ad or whatever that's like an interruption marketing kind of a thing um can, can you explain like the other kinds of ads there are like like um like maybe like retargeting like these different terms you hear but what what, what does it exactly mean yeah, I think there's two ways to think about it. As marketers, you have the different terminology to talk about the different tools and techniques that are available to you. Call it mm -hmm. remarketing, call it brand awareness, call it whatever. Uh, but end consumers don't think in that way. And so when you think about the techniques to apply at a different stage in the customer lifecycle, mm -hmm. that you can identify with. Because every consumer out on the market right now are at a certain stage of the of the, of the the purchase cycle. They are either problem, they are unaware of the problem they have and they don't know about your customer company or product category, or they could be problem aware and they know that they have a certain problem, but they don't know what the solution is, or they may be solution aware and they know that they need a particular product, but they don't know if it's your product or somebody else, or maybe they're very specific and they want your business and your product specifically. But at each of these different touch points, there's different techniques and different tools. And, and really as, as marketers, you're just using something along these lines of the purchase cycle to reach out to them. And so in most cases, I think if you look at a stage of a business, um, you know, let's call it sub $10 million if you're a startup and your brand is not relatively well known, generally speaking, and it's very, you know, not very, it's, it's a very broad way of thinking about this is that your advertising and, and channels are going to be more direct response in nature. You're basically trying to introduce people to the business, introducing the problem that they might be having, and then walking through the, the sales discussions um, all the way to funnel so that they can get to make a purchase right then and there. Because as a startup or as a smaller business, you need your advertising dollars to be hyper efficient. So you're targeting companies, sorry, you're targeting consumers that are closer to the purchase decision that are further down the funnel. However, as your business gets larger and most of the easy dollars that you would spend to acquire customers become lost and it's harder to acquire for them and it's less efficient to get them, you would reach out further up the funnel to reach more brand awareness campaigns that are not right, quite ready to make a purchase decision right then and there, but you start thinking about and having more brand awareness about your business so that come three months from now or six months from now, come the time they have the need to purchase the decision, they're ready for it. And so... It's really about the 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 two buckets. Forget about the techniques for a second. If you do the, the two buckets of of marketing, really boils down to having more direct response in nature versus more brand centric in and more storytelling in nature about the business because they they reach, not always, but they reach different segments of the purchase cycle of a particular consumer. That's awesome, and and it's, and it's cool that you think of it that way and, and put them in those two separate buckets and. Um, and if you start your business off, you know, with someone like you that knows what they're doing and, and can help with that, you could bring in the, those uh, that low hanging fruit, you know, and get some quick money. And then down the road, when you have to broaden, broaden the reach, then you, it's, it's a longer buying cycle. But, but you sort of are. Yeah, you have a base of customers already, as long as you, you know, are working on, you know, retention and all that stuff on the back end, too. That you have like a sort of base that you where you can sort of afford, you know, to have like a longer buying cycle and stuff like that. So, so, but that's super cool that, that you've um, that you identified that, you know, and, and you work on that because most marketers, because I talked to a ton of them, you know, even ones that wanted, you know, do marketing for my wellness business and stuff, you know, and they they never talk about that, and none of them ever talk about like your product and the the margins that you have on the back end and if you could actually have 
you know, if you're, if, if the business could actually sustain paid ads and things like that, you know, um, my, my business can, you know, the thank, thankfully, but, but I've never been asked that question. It's, 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 it's amazing. Of course. I mean, it's, it's, it's the basic unit economics of any ad campaign, right? So if I look at a company with a $50 product and your margin is 70% to cost fulfilled, it just means that I have $35 in contribution margins to spend towards advertising campaigns. And so if I can spend anything less than that, unit economics wise, not including your, your fixed costs of like salaries or rent or whatever else that comes with operating the business, it means that on a per dollar basis, I have $35 to work with and anything within that. And then if you start accounting for repeat purchases, adjacent SKUs, then you just realize that a lot of the advertising campaign is really a function of math. And how do you actually find a sustainable campaign? And as marketers, we're not, we're, we don't have magic bullets. We don't have like a, like a way to know um, how ad platforms are going to respond to your audience, but we can make educated guesses. And that's also why, again, if you go back to sort of the early history of my introduction of why I think about our skill sets is more around not taking a, a company from zero to one, but from one to 10 is because a cold start for a new brand or new company is honestly realistically very hard. You don't know what you don't know. And you have a lot of different experiments that you're running. And when some campaign's not working, you don't know if it's because the product category is a problem, the product quality is a problem. Is it your offer? Is it the messaging? Like all kinds of different levers available to you. Whereas if you're, if you're business with established sales, you can then bring in the marketer to look at the history and say, hey, this seems to be working. Hey, our customers are writing these reviews and saying these are the reasons why they've bought. And then now as a marketer, all you're doing is you're looking for gaps. Gaps in the way that the consumers that have successfully purchased versus the customers that have not and how to close that. Or in some cases, the gaps between what the brand owners do know about the product and the business and help them translate that to consumers. And so really, you're not doing anything new. You're just saying, oh, that's why someone bought. Let me put this into an ad so that more people can see the same thing to be more convinced because that's what worked in the past. And that's a, that's a large function of being one to 10 versus from being zero to one. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and I love that too. Like you, you figure out what's working and you do more of that, which is what you're supposed to do with, but, um, a lot of bi business owners, um, they, when they start getting success, they try to figure out something else to do. <laughs> which is somewhat appropriate, but if you need to think about growth or expansions or experimentation, they should be a, bu a budget that's set aside. So if I'm trying to have a growth channel that works very well, let's say I took a brand from, from zero to 1 million off paid ads, mm -hmm. then it's 100% appropriate to spend $15,000 per month or $100,000 per month to explore organic because then that cost of that new channel exploration is being subsidized by the core business. That's completely appropriate. And I think that's also sustainable that you could be like, you know what? I just blew 30 grand on a campaign and it didn't work. But guess what? I learned a bunch of different things that would lead me to figure out what works. And that's completely appropriate. But throwing spaghetti on the wall and trying to hope things stick and not looking at what's worked in the past, that's a common pattern that we see a lot of founders and, and brand owners make. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So um, speaking of organic, is it do, do, do you um, like merge the two together to to get a better result? Is it is that possible? It is possible. It's not our core wheelhouse. We do this for so we also are brand owners ourselves. So we our core function and core business in the agency is made eighty percent about client services, but we have twenty percent of it that we do other like brands and products that we start on the side or we acquired, which is basically the the long term vision of of our business. We want to be able to acquire brands and grow in house. Um, 
but organic as a channel mix against paid is that paid ads gets very expensive very quickly, but it's the fastest way to go from, you know, call it from zero to three to five million. Um, but at some point, you're going to get diminishing returns on ads because it's going to get more and more expensive to um, find the next new customers. And so the a general brand um, growth and the channel exploration, you generally see them grow from uh, paid acquisition because you can turn on and off ad campaigns quickly to owned audiences, which generally could be in things like you know social following or it could turn into um, email accounts. But organic is also a very important channel that sometimes gets you know get overlooked, and it could be uh, organic social. So if you have a content team that produces content, although you might get variable results unless you have um, reached some sort of escape velocity with traction. But for SEO, for example, um, if your if your product category has significant search volume, and one way to tell that is, do you have a lot of paid ads that are in Google search that have sufficient volume to to run uh, effectively? Then it's usually a good candidate to run SEO on those on those uh, on your on your brand. And what that helps you with is it helps you lower your total advertising budget for the total attributable sales. So when you start looking at let's call it from three to five millions and from to five to ten million, you start seeing your um, attributed revenue and the mix of how you get customers, especially new customer acquisition, shift towards from being 90% paid to progressively being 20% paid or 30% paid or sorry, uh, 30% organic or something like that. Um, and that's also, you know, I should also include the fact that you might have like 10 or 50% from like owned audiences. So email revenue is, is generally somewhere between 15 to 30% of your overall sales, very mm -hmm. business dependent. Um, but it's always good to have a third mix so that you're not so heavily reliant and dependent on paid ads because that can change, that can get more expensive. And progressively, if we're looking at trends, it has gotten harder and harder in, in terms of advertising um, year over year. So that 2023, like directionally would have been harder to run than 2022 and so on and so forth. You can go back previous years. That's that's that, that's awesome. Thank, thank you for explaining that. Yeah. And um I, I've noticed that with people, um, you, you know, like where the, as, as you have to broaden the reach and it, it gets more costly and all that for the, for the paid ads. That's one of the reasons why I have the, the, the podcasting business is because when, when that does start to happen to a business, they could uh, like a podcast is a viable source for them. And, you know, the, you could cut up the episodes and put them on social and do all kinds of stuff, you, you know, like, um, and uh, uh, you know, build community and, and and all that kind of stuff. Plus, there's that no like and trust factor that, that it builds, you know, and and that people are looking for these days because people do shop differently. They do a lot more research these days. Absolutely, you know? it, 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 that's a big deal. So um, let's see. So like with with with, uh, with you, how, how does uh, podcasting fit into your marketing strategy for your company? Mm, that's funny because I think a large part of what I learned about myself, a lot of this is about self-discovery. So if you look at my career path, it's always been solving the next incremental thing. One thing that I've noticed is that a lot of the times that I'm I'm communicating internally, either to clients or to our own teammates, is that I'm useful for talking through a lot of different ideas, but I can't get myself to commit to writing these things down. And so I think it's, it's a reflection of me recognizing that um, 
uh, capturing ideas verbally or being presented with a question and then sort of responding right then and there is a very good format for me personally. Um, so I started podcasting largely this year as an effort to really document my ideas and thoughts. And so I can then repurpose it for other of our own content. Um, because a lot of heart is making sure that when we have new prospects coming to us, a lot of times they 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 hear that wow, like you guys are very knowledgeable about this particular field. You guys can think about problems in a way about our business in ways that we may not have thought about. But they need to hear that from us firsthand. And just like when we work with our companies and brands that we work with, there's a gap between the business's capabilities against what the product's actual you know, functions, abilities are. We had the same gap in our marketing. And a large part comes down to if people didn't jump on a call with us to learn about how we think about their business and their problems, they're not usually hearing that. So podcasting is really a large exercise for me to have this these kind of thoughts and ideas captured um, so we can redistribute and, and hopefully have people go through these sort of recordings prior to them speaking with us. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Cause there is that education and research process that the new style, you know, goes through the new, of uh, clients and customers. They call it like a seven 11 four phenomenon where there's seven hours of research that people do um, through 11 different interactions on four different platforms. So you need to be multi-platform. You need to have content like you're doing, which is awesome. And you're su super knowledgeable and, um, and, and, and you're like a real deal. You know, you could, you, you could tell when you're talking to somebody that's, that's in a field, you know, that, that, that's providing a service for somebody, whether they're, whether they're the real deal or not. And, and, you know, and, and you know, like very few have the knowledge, but you you have that, but you also have the passion, you know, and then you understand business, you know, like, like, like looking at the hard numbers, does this pencil, you know, let's, let's test this, see if we can make it better, not just be satisfied, you know, change with the times, you know, if, if, if things start changing, you don't just stick with what you're doing, you know, you'll, you'll evolve with it and, 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 and continue to help your customers grow. That's, that's super awesome to see. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. I mean, we're just trying to figure out how to solve problems because that's what we liked and and that's what we've gravitated towards. So a lot of it really is motivated by trying to solve problems um, for ourselves, really, just trying to understand, you know, what are the skill sets that we need in this current market to be effective with the different businesses. And again, that's also why I said that as we're doing consulting, a large part of it also bleeds into our own brand um, that we acquire for ourselves so that we want to make sure that whatever we're helping other people do, um, you know, are the same advice that we apply for ourselves. Yeah, for sure. And people uh, like realize how much of a big responsibility it is, you know, for when you're, you're, help, you're actually helping a business, you know, having some people like, you know, provide, you know, food for their family and stuff like that, you know, when they, 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 they might be sinking and have a good product and good, some, something good for the world. And you could help them to, to, you know, to make their business strong and flourish and, that's a big responsibility, you know, that, that you have. So, so, so congratulations for that. So what's the what, one thing or one big idea that people should take away from like this episode? One big idea. Well, um, I think the thing that I've always gravitated towards, um, if I, if I go back to advice that I had for myself that I think it's been most useful to my career. Um, and it also applies in, in the context of, of this discussion is that, um, 
asking really good questions lead to really good answers. And so I think for me, in in my upbringing or in my sort of career path, um, going back to my, my, my days with Basecamp, um, one of the advice that Jason Fried gave me has been a very strong guiding sort of uh, uh, advice for me, which was, um, the story goes, uh, one day we had Jeff Bezos to come visit the office. So Jeff Bezos is a minority investor in into Basecamp and, and 37 Signals. And I remember sitting there at 25, you know, listening to Jeff Bezos give a talk to the employees. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this guy's worth like 23 billion at the time. And I'm like, I have nothing to relate to this guy. Like, how do I, what do I, how do I take advantage of that? Right. <laughs> and so I went to ask Jason afterwards, I was like, Hey, how do you interact with someone like that? And how do you actually get something useful out of him? And, or somewhere along those lines, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a bit. And his answer to me, um, I, it really stayed with me, which was when you want to understand uh, and get original answers out of somebody, you really have to source what makes that person unique about them and that their situation. And so that really comes down to, you know, for example, I'm a marketer, you're a marketer, they're a marketer, every, or a designer. Everyone's got their profession and vocation that, that leads with their identity. But what makes them unique about their specific approach largely boils down to what led them to where they are today. So if you look at their history, if you look at their upbringing, if you look at their environments, and you look at how that shapes how they think, that's where you're going to get a lot of original ideas and insights. And that's been a very useful advice for us as we approach marketing for brands. We're always asking, everybody is selling the same product, but what makes them unique? Well, their original story, their approach to how they solve the problem for themselves, or the fact that... Um, uh, the the product owners and founders approach this problem in a particular way, and that becomes sort of the unique sort of like drum that allows them to be like who they are. We've always leaned on that, and that extends from brand marketing to personal branding to also hiring. When we have all these people and juniors that are joining your organization, most of the time they haven't figured who they really are. But if you ask, you'll find out a lot about you know who their upbringing is, what kind of influences they have, and you realize that a lot of their strengths are hidden within that sort of stories. Um, to really surface uh, and, and help them bring out their, their true value of, of what they bring to the table. Um, so it goes down to, you know, asking good questions to find unique originality out of somebody. That's always been a strong guiding compass for, for me and something that I wish more people knew. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that, that, that's, that, that, that is a key factor in, in, in success for sure. Well, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your valuable insights with us. What's the best way for people to like uh, get a hold of you or follow you? Absolutely. Um, so you can find me on Twitter. So I my, my username is JTC Chan. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn, although there's a lot of us named John Chan. Um, yeah. Or you can go visit us on our website. It's 2x.agency. And you know we're pretty open. Uh, book a call with us. And I'm happy to chat and learn more about your business. And uh, yeah. And Al, thanks very much for having us having me on the show. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll be sure to put uh, all your info in the links below for the audio and the video. Awesome. Sure. So that concludes this episode of Podcast Marketing Secrets. This is Al Morenton signing off. I hope you have a beautiful day.